Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Father, we pray that you bless this time as we learn about your sweet salvation coming to yet another person in the book of Acts, but a person who because of his state has been rendered an alien from you, a person who was not permitted to worship with your people, who was kept outside per your word, but by the grace that came through your Son was brought into the family of God. We pray that you would give us the grace to celebrate this in a manner that is worthy of what you did, Lord, and help us to apply these things to our situation. And we pray that this would be a catalyst for greater love from us to you, We pray for a movement of your spirit in this time to guide us and direct us and illuminate the text for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time, we, as we were going through our series in the book of Acts, saw Simon Magus offer to purchase the Holy Spirit with money as a reflection of his own spiritual poverty. And he did this consistent with so many in our day. Lost souls are spiritually dead. And so they are dead to spiritually appraised things. So when they see these things and they desire the effects of them, they offer payment for them in the only category in which they operate, and that is the temporal and the carnal. Now today we will observe the statistically rare occurrence of a man who is very much worldly wealthy, who while in that state recognizes his own spiritual poverty and turns to the true riches of salvation in Christ, and this man is known to us as the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, as we begin, I want to ask all of you a question. Have you ever seen a camel enter into the eye of a needle? doesn't happen often, but if you have never seen it, you will here this afternoon. Now, as we did with last week's micro-narrative, we're going to tell this story verse by verse, expounding the historical context of this as we go as well as gleaning points of application. And then after we have gotten all the way through the text, we will give you a few more points of application in addition. So Acts 8.25 then is where we begin again. Verse 40 is where we will end, which will take us all the way through the 8th chapter. So Acts 8.25, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And what I really want you to understand from this 
verse is that Philip's got a plan. He knows where he's going. He's got his ministerial path plotted out. But as the saying goes, if you want to make God laugh, make a plan, which is to say that Philip's plans are about to change because God is about to blow them up, signified by the conjunction, but, as in verse 26, but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza, and Luke wants you to know there, in parentheses, that this is a desert road. And so, because it's a desert road, it's a command that on the surface doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Philip has, thus far as we've encountered him, pursued the masses along with the apostles. As a fisher of men, naturally, he's been spending the majority of his time in the most well-stocked ponds in and around Samaria. And by the way, that approach makes good sense. It's the same approach that we took when we went to the Lorraine County Fair. We went where the people were. And in keeping with this philosophy, Philip might naturally have traveled a more well-trafficked highway or byway as a way of better fulfilling Christ's command. If the point here is to use the travel route to evangelize, that sort of an approach would seem more sensible. But this is not a well-trafficked highway or byway. It is either a desert path or it is a path to the desert because the original sentence structure in the original language allows for either. But in any event, it's hardly an eight-lane highway that takes you to a metropolis. This is the type of road that you could probably spend some significant time on and not encounter another living soul. Nevertheless, absent any discussion about the apparent flaw in God's missiology, Philip hearkens to the angel immediately, recognizing that if it is God's command, it is certainly flawless. Verse 27, So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, first off, Candace is not a name. It is a hereditary title given to Ethiopian queens, so it's something more akin to Pharaoh so-and-so or Caesar so-and-so or another monarchical moniker or, if you wanted to say in our context, President so-and-so. Candace is also an English translation of a Greek transliteration of an originally Ethiopian term. So I'm going to butcher this, but let's just hope that this is at least closer than Candace. The actual pronunciation would be something more like Kiudakai, and we only wish that we had someone in this congregation who could help us with Ethiopian pronunciations. Oh, wait, we do. Go to him. I'm sure he can do better by far than I just did there, but that gives you the general idea. Now, as to the eunuch, he was actually a physical eunuch. And I say this because this point is not as obvious as it may seem. Eunuch could have simply referred to one who holds a very high position in a given government, but uh, whose plumbing, so to speak, was still very much intact. And this is true of Potiphar in the book of Genesis. And we know that his plumbing was still intact because he had a wife there, yet he was called a eunuch. It was simply a reference to his position and authority. However, given that this eunuch is referred to as a eunuch and also a court official, you can surmise from the additional identifier there that the former identifier did not simply refer to his position within the government or governmental authority. And so he was actually made a physical eunuch, evidently because he had 
some significant contact with or oversight of the harem, and for obvious reasons, men who were in this position were not allowed to keep their manhood. Now, as the text makes clear, somehow or other this gentleman was a Jewish acolyte, and for reasons that will soon be discussed, we cannot call him a proselyte, but he does wholeheartedly subscribe to the Jewish religion as found in the Torah and the Tanakh. He would be in the category of God-fearer, the same category that Cornelius is in in Acts 10, which we will encounter soon enough. And so that's the reason he made this trek to Jerusalem in the first place. He buys in completely to the whole system. Now, it's interesting that we know this man by this title in perpetuity. I think if somebody were uh, choosing a dignified identification to be remembered in posterity, they would probably not choose to be remembered by their severed genitalia. Nevertheless, that is the way he is remembered. But he is remembered this way by Luke because his status as a eunuch has great significance for at least the following two reasons. First off, he has profound wealth. He is a very, very high-ranking government official. And so when we uh, read and study biblical narratives, we get in our mind's eye a certain concept. If you have imagined him with one or two people alongside of him, you've imagined this incorrectly. He has an entourage. He has many servants, many attendants that are traveling with him as well. As a consequence of his great wealth, we will soon learn that he is the possessor of a scroll of Isaiah's writings. This is way, way before the printing press. And so these were all handwritten. They were very expensive. And so this is something that was out of reach for anybody who was not super rich. Second, and more importantly, eunuchs were excluded from full temple worship due to the then common interpretation and application of Deuteronomy 23.1, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So on account of his condition, he was permitted to hear God's word read in the synagogues, but he could not participate in any of the many Jewish religious rites, nor could he become an official proselyte to the Jewish religion. And this fact is what may have very well led him to choose to purchase Isaiah and his writings in particular. And verse 28, we learn this. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And I say this because in a moment we're going to find out that he is studying in our text Isaiah 53. But there was something written a few chapters later that may have actually been his primary motivation for buying this very expensive scroll in the first place, and that is Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. He is the foreigner. Then it gets even more specific to him. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. In other words, behold, I produce nothing, and nothing will come from me. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. To him who has been rendered childless, I will make him fruitful. So what would motivate a man to travel more than 1,500 miles, likely by oxen being pulled behind an ox, in honor of a religion that he cannot even gain access to. 
The answer, I think, is in Isaiah 56. It is future hope, the fulfillment of which he does not presently understand, but he soon will. Continuing on in verse 29, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Now we see here that all of this is divinely ordered, and we see it again. Philip obviously knows this. He has an angel of the Lord, and then he has the third person of the Trinity. Probably a pretty good idea uh, that he has that uh, God is indeed superintending all of this. And what is important for us to remember is that this works similarly in our day. And the only difference is that what Philip is able to recognize in real time, we are only able to discern in hindsight, but it still happens every day. And it's my hope that all of you have had such an experience. You just went about your daily business. Circumstances happened that made you go left or go right, or maybe you got delayed, or maybe you were ahead of schedule, and then you encounter this person and you give them the gospel and maybe the conversation ends in their salvation or the net result is at least the sowing of a seed. But the events seem very much divinely ordered. Continuing in verse 30, going through verse 31, Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, first, let's answer the question so that it doesn't gnaw at you later. Why is this gentleman reading out loud? Well, the answer to this is deeply theological. It's also deeply profound. Brace yourself for this. The reason is that the words on this incredibly expensive scroll had no space in between them. So in order to be able to understand what was written on this, you'd have to read it out loud so that you could, in pronouncing it, discern the syllables and get a sense of the beginning of one word and the end of another. Basically, anybody who read one of these scrolls had to do this. And the question becomes, why would anybody write this way? Well, probably because the materials that scrolls were made out of were expensive. But at any rate, this situation persisted until the Middle Ages. It was actually a man named Ambrose who was noteworthy because he was able to read the works of Augustine silently to himself. It was very unusual to be able to do that, and you had to have a real mastery of the language because of the way that the words were all smashed together. So now that that is settled, let's pause here for a moment, and I want to ask you a philosophical question based upon what we're seeing in the text. What happens to the elect of the Father who never have the opportunity to hear the gospel? I mean, repeat it. What happens to the elect of the Father who never have the opportunity to hear the gospel? Now, I won't leave that question hanging in the air very long because it is admittedly a trick question that situation never occurs. Father requires that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word and that the word be preached by someone who was sent, Romans 10. So if they are elect, then a preacher is going to be sent to them or a Bible or a gospel tract or they will hear a sermon or, or, or. And in the modern era, there are many different ways where that information can come to them. We are more connected as a race as we have ever, than we have ever been. But one way or another, if they have been elected unto salvation, Christ is going to leave the 99 and is going to run down that one through the Spirit, even if that one happens to be on a desert path to somewhere in Timbuktu at the time, or the equivalent of Timbuktu. A somewhat related to this question is the far more common, what about that isolated village without Bibles or a preacher? 
Now, to answer one aspect of that question, if there are elect in that village, God is going to send them a Bible or a preacher or a gospel tract in a bottle to wash up on their shores. Now, for example, in 1955, there lay deep in the Ecuadorian jungle just such a village, a village full of the Father's elect. But they were isolated. They were unreached and pretty well unreachable on account of their geographical location and also on the account of the fact that they were a murderous horde, so nobody really wanted to go there. And what a conundrum this presents. But God then sent five missionaries, and after giving the Indians the gospel and slowly building trust, the Indians, uh, sadly, murdered all of the missionaries. But then the missionaries' wives came back, and they finished what their husbands had started, and the Father set his seal on his elect through the gospel. Now that is an example of the fact that God is not now, as he was not then, bound by natural boundaries. There is no village too remote that he cannot reach it. There is no person too isolated. God is a list. This list is called the book of life, and everybody on it and in it is going to be converted, even if it means that he pursues them for a lifetime, all the way to say to use another biblical example, a cross that just happens to be, wouldn't you know it, right next to the same cross where there is hanging the Savior of the world. But in any event, and irrespective what particular circumstances and set of them that the Lord needs to use before they leave this life, he will see to it that they know him. And Philip exemplifies the means by which this great cosmic plan is fulfilled. He is like a seed pod. And the spirit is the wind, as Jesus said. And the wind carries the seed to exactly where it needs to be, exactly when it needs to be there in order for God to sprout a new creation. And this wonderful divine ordering to the end of the salvation of the Father's elect remains true even to today. It is by this and through this that John 6, 37 and 39 through 40, all that the Father gives, Jesus will come to him. And the one who comes to him, he will certainly not cast out. This is the will of the Father who sent him, that of all that he has given him, he lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and Christ himself will raise him up on the last day. It is a profound testimony, by the way, of the Father's love to send the Spirit in this way. Ladies, you may have encountered a male suitor. If you're of a certain age, I would assume that you have. You may have encountered many of them. And the more aggressive ones doggedly pursue their female counterparts. Why? Because they need them. Because they recognize that completion for them requires their presence and uniting together with a female counterpart. God, on the other hand, pursues us like the Ethiopian eunuch because we need him. And because our completion requires him. And how far will he go to get wretches in order to make them his treasure? He'll go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And speaking of the remotest parts of the earth, what's very interesting is that amongst Greek historians and writers of various stripes in the first century and prior to it, Ethiopia was known as the end of the earth. In their estimation, Rome was the heart of the ancient world, making Ethiopia the most distant of nations and making the Ethiopians, as Homer referred to them in the Odyssey, the most distant of people. 
But the path to Ethiopia didn't simply run through a remote desert road. It also ran through the greatest messianic passage of the Old Testament, which is Isaiah 53. Pick up in verse 32. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth? The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Now an aspect of evangelistic methodology that receives heavy emphasis in certain circles and in circles that I was uh, brought along into is transitioning in conversation from the natural to the unnatural. And so somebody may say, well, the browns stink. And so then you're thinking, how do I segue from, wow, the browns stink to you're a sinner in need of a savior? That's the general idea. Absolutely nobody was better than this at this than Jesus. Obviously, and the prime examples are Nicodemus, the woman at the well. The analogy of the wind, which I already referenced, is used and applied to the spirit and then natural water to living water. But Philip, as the designated evangelist, was probably no slouch when it came to this either. So you can imagine him here trying to plot a dialectic path from the natural to the supernatural, something like, hey, you know, this is a barren path, and our souls are barren without Jesus too. And wait, maybe I'm forcing it a little bit. Maybe instead... I see your ox is wearing a yoke. You know, Jesus once gave a lesson about the yoke and his yoke being light. All right, that's a little bit of a corny segue, but maybe. I have options, but at any rate, the pressure is definitely on. And for Pete's sakes, he's been supernaturally translated to the present location for this. He was uh, approached directly by an angel and then the third person of the Trinity. But then he walks up to the Ethiopian here, and lo and behold, he is presently reading Isaiah 53 of all passages out loud. And then the Ethiopian asks him, uh, presumably out of frustration, because he doesn't understand what he's reading, pray tell, of whom does this speak? Now, in the majority report, evangelism is not this easy, but when it is... We call this a divine appointment. And this is an appointment that Philip is very prepared to meet. Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, as a point of application, every Christian needs to be able to do this from every single passage of scripture. This is not an evangelist type of thing. This is a Christian thing. And if it's Isaiah 53 that you get to transition from, then thank God for his grace and for teeing that one up for you like that. But all of Scripture speaks to the spiritual needs of sinners. And so every passage can function as a starting point to get to Christ, and it needs to. In terms of the natural to spiritual transition, too much emphasis is placed upon this by many. A whole lot of Christians need to be less focused on being clever and more focused on being clear. This, however, is much more important. And there are no tricks with this. In order to do this, it's simply a matter of doing the hard work to know comprehensively the various different texts of Scripture and their meanings. Clearly, Philip then is not uh, the ten suits, ten sermons kind of evangelist that we previously referenced. Nor can you and I be shallow students of Scripture either. You need to recognize that 
as it was with you and other people in this church. God uses different concepts and thoughts to save us. But those thoughts always come from the Bible. So if you want to be an effective evangelist, you've got to know the word. Now, next in the narrative, it becomes clear that the Ethiopian has received the message of salvation with sincerity and joy. And so what would Philip suggest to him as the first act of Christian obedience? How about the external sign of water baptism? And that lesson is implied by verse 36. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, I'll give you verse 37. I want you to look in your particular copy of Scripture. It might be on your phone. It might be on another device or it may be uh, ancient manuscripts. I want you to notice uh, whether or not verse 37 is differentiated from the rest of the text and how it is if it is. Okay, is it in italics there or is it bracketed? Bracketed. All right. So let's read verse 37 and I'll explain that. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So why do you have the brackets or the italics? Well, the reason is because this is not in the original text. No early manuscript has this. That's why they've differentiated it in the way that they have. Later manuscripts do have this because the church in the second century had uh, that statement as a kind of requisite for water baptism, which is, by the way, not necessarily wrong. Many churches do something like this today. They, after having interviewed this person and becoming confident of their profession of faith in Christ, will have them profess again in front of the congregation so that people understand what's happening there and the significance of it. Now, how this edition likely originated, there are a few different possibilities, but one, and perhaps the most likely, is that it was written into the margins of a manuscript and then eventually adopted into the actual text itself. So it probably wasn't any kind of an intentional edition. Nevertheless, the conclusion of verse 37 is certainly true. So it absolutely fits with the message But I will say that the statement itself, if you believe with all your heart, you may, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense given the circumstances surrounding this because of the if. If you had an angel come to you and tell you to to be at a certain place and then you found that person at a certain place, you gave them the gospel and the third person of the Trinity also came to you and you were translated there through supernatural means. I mean, I'm not one to pronounce salvation upon somebody in an absolute sense, but if that ever happens to me, I'm probably going to side with, yeah, I think this was legitimate. So I don't think Philip would have been very likely to posit that as a question, if you believe with all your heart. I think it's pretty clear that he has. Now then, back to what is in the text. Uh, Verse 38, picking up there. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So the original Spirit airline, one with uh, far more legroom than its contemporary counterfeits, translates Philip to Azotus, which is the ancient Philistine city of Ashdod. If you recall reading that name in the Old Testament. 
And so what does Philip do when he gets there? Or what do evangelists do wherever they are? They evangelize. And they do so in exceptional circumstances, like being supernaturally translated to a desert road to meet with one dude on his way to Ethiopia. And they do so in ordinary circumstances as well. Look, the clarity of a divine appointment and seeing God move in that way, that's wonderful. Like what happened there with the Ethiopian. But the command to preach Christ isn't contingent upon the stars aligning in just such a way. And there are a lot of people who think this way about evangelism. I will be faithful when the Spirit has made it clear. The Spirit has given you the command to go preach the gospel to all creation. It's very clear. So the exceptional needs to not be used to exclude the necessity of the usual, and clearly it does not for Philip. Now, having finished the exegesis and much of the application of this, there are a few observations that still need to be made. And the first one, and forgive me for this, point number one, the Ethiopian was obviously black and no one cared. And now you might be saying, why are you even bringing that up? I didn't bring it up. It was in one of the commentaries that I read from a gentleman who tracks more woke And it did the same thing uh, with respect to the church giving to each other and making that a sort of proto-socialism. So because he brought it up, I'm going to address it in the event that it comes up with you. And to give you an idea of exactly where he's coming from, he says, quote, Indeed, this story is about reaching uh, the sorts of people of color apparently before the gospel comes to what we would call Europe today. As I read that, I thought, Nothing is sacred for these people. Nobody would naturally read this without reading their culture into it and come to this conclusion. That's because nothing is sacred. They read the ethnic animus of our yesteryear into our present and then also way back into the past and even into societies that didn't think this way at all. And what are the implications of that statement that he just made? It's, you know, God let those Druids and those Vikings burn in hell for a lot longer than the Ethiopians and the Germanic tribes, so let that be a lesson to you white Europeans. That is what he's getting at. Now, there was a great ethnic animus in the New Testament. You know this. It had nothing to do with whites and blacks because first century Palestinian Jews weren't all that white and uh, Samaritans weren't all that black. Everybody was pretty much brown. The ethnic animus was between Jews and Gentiles. But given that Philip was a Hellenistic Jew, going back to chapter 6, or a Greekified Jew, as I say, he's probably pretty down with the Greeks. And nobody has a particular problem in the Roman Empire with black or brown or white or Asian. Ergo, Rome is in ancient Asia Minor. You could rise to any level in that civilization with any skin color. Nobody cared. And you could also be treated like a dog, as a slave, with any skin color. Nobody cared. The truth is that far from this story cutting in the favor of social justice warriors, it actually cuts against them, because Luke never mentions the Ethiopian skin color, nor, in fact, Philip's. And what is very clear is that the terms of their fellowship with each other are not the color of their skin, as the social justice warriors try to make it today. It is Christ. The Ethiopian is treated exactly like everybody else. Here is Christ come to him. Now, nowadays, the social justice warriors promote segregation in Christ's church. 
They have separate services, separate events for people of color, which we're all people of color, by the way. Uh, none of you are translucent like jellyfishes, so we'll have some degree of color. But they have separate services for those people. This account is not about exclusion. It is all about his inclusion. This is the story of an orphan finding a family, and that family line transcended skin color. So if you have to see this in light of the color of somebody's skin because your heart and your mind have been so successfully twisted by the wickedness of your own generation and those who mean to rule you by teaching you to see only what divides you from others, then see this. Christ died for people of every color. God painted with a wonderful variety on purpose. And then he demonstrated time and again that he can redeem people of all different colors. Point number two. If you are unconverted and you know it, look to the example of the Ethiopian eunuch in order to help encourage your own salvation. Well, I have sounded very much like a Calvinist thus far, have I not? The truth is I'm not about to sound like uh, an Arminian here. That'll only be the case if you misunderstand the doctrines of grace. I chose my words very carefully there for a reason. I did not say achieve your own salvation. I did not say secure your own salvation. I did not say even remotely help Christ save you. But even with these clarifications, still more is needed. By encourage, I do not refer to you moving your own soul even an inch. This is the sovereign right and ability of God alone. But through what means does God save? And here is my point. Romans ten seventeen again, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But in addition to this, you may also add the upper room type of praying. God's people pray for God to make more of his people and God uses their prayers to do just that. And all of this is within the control of unconverted people. Can an unbeliever save themselves? No, of course they cannot. Can an unbeliever place themselves around the means of salvation? Well, of course so. They can put themselves in the hearing of the gospel. They can study the Bible on their own. And thankfully, in our day, they don't even have to sacrifice their future generations in order to be able to afford a copy. You can get it on your phone or on an app for free. They can place themselves around the people of God. And if they do place themselves around the people of God and are honest about their situation, those people will certainly pray for their conversion. Everything that the Ethiopian was doing is possible for every unbeliever. First of all, he was going to the temple to worship. Now, in the present dispensation, we, the people of God, are the temple of God. And while you cannot worship through, but through Christ, you are certainly welcome among us as we worship Christ. He also read the word. And he was blessed by an evangelist. And you can be too. Every faithful pastor is an evangelist. And for that matter, so is every Christian. And I raise this now because I have ministered to several victims of their own misapprehensions and misapplications of Calvinism. Well, God does everything so I can do nothing. Well, in terms of the actual saving of your soul, that is absolutely true. But in terms of positioning, there is much you can do. I tell you what, if I was damned and I knew that I was damned and I knew why I was damned and I knew that there was a book that explained how I could not be damned and a people entrusted with a message of how not to be damned, I would spend as much time in that book and with that people as I could. But then 
You will sometimes get the question, what if it takes a really long time? Really? How much is your soul worth? Like how much time is too much time? Connected to this, how old do you suppose that the Ethiopian eunuch is? Text does not say, but I think not young. And I think not young because typically it takes time to rise to that level of authority. And so after what has likely been years, if not a lifetime, of being convinced that salvation was of the Jews, which it was, still keeps coming, despite not even being able to become a proselyte or enter any part of the temple except the court of the Gentiles and never being able to offer sacrifices and not being able to participate in holy days. And after probable decades of mere window shopping, he travels 1,500 plus miles to not be a Jew. Because his soul, as it turns out, was worth potentially a few decades of wrestling with God in hopes that he will be able to name the place of his final struggle, Penile, because he saw God there. Now to start to sum this point up, let me quote for you a far better known Calvinist than myself. It is oft quoted. You may have heard of him. His name is John MacArthur. Quote, God's sovereignty and salvation does not obviate man's responsibility. That God rewards the seeking heart is the clear teaching of Scripture. In Jeremiah 29, 13, God said, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Well, in John 7, 17, the Lord Jesus Christ said, If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. The eunuch is a classic example of one who lived up to the light that he had. It's a critical statement. God then gave him full revelation of Jesus Christ through Philip's ministry. So... Commit, sinner, what you cannot control to the sovereign of all things. Because if salvation is not all of the Lord, then there is no grace, and thus there is no salvation, because wretches like you and I are certainly not going to be saved without it. But live up to the light that you have. Control what you can. Read, spend time with God's people, solicit their prayers, beg God for mercy, go into that prayer closet and don't come out until you have an answer and wait trusting the Lord for your own desert road experience. And focus, by the way, on your need of salvation and the fact that Christ is a great Savior and leave for now the mechanics of how that happens to God, which is always my advice. Calvinism should be something that enriches your understanding of God. If it's an impediment For you getting to God, you completely misunderstand this and you need to just set that aside for a time. And if that makes me a bad Calvinist saying that, I don't really care. Point number three, the Ethiopian becomes a missionary himself. Now the evidence for this is non-canonical because the Ethiopian never appears to us again in Acts, but it is nevertheless reliable. This information comes to us by way of several of the church fathers and especially Irenaeus. So this means that although he certainly did not know it at the time, the Ethiopian was not just reading Scripture or being written into what would become Scripture. He was also the fulfillment of Scripture, specifically Psalm 68. And I will read this to you and I will skim. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. And let those who hate him flee before him. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. 
He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. Bless God in the congregations, even the Lord. You who are of the fountain of Israel, there is Benjamin, the youngest, ruling them. The princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Nephtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Show yourself strong, O God, who acted on our behalf. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts in the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of the people trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. He has scattered the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times, behold, he speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel, and his strength is in the skies. O God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength to the power and power to the people. Blessed be God. And so here is Ethiopia with its outstretched arms. And now God who speaks forth with his mighty voice, is about to speak to them as he said he would. The church in Jerusalem has become the church in Samaria, and it's about to become the church in Ethiopia too, on account of this man. Uh, There remains at this point just one thing more that I want to point out to you, and that is the sweet irony of a eunuch becoming at least one of the fathers of the Ethiopian church. There's a very good chance that this man's barrenness was a source of pain for him. I don't know if he volunteered to become a eunuch, as some did, in order to gain this position. I don't know if he was made one, as some were, against his will, and put in that position anyhow. But as a result of his condition, there is no prospect of the hope of who he was being transferred and preserved in another generation. And all the money in the world can't buy that if either God or man has removed this capacity from him. And yet through him we learn that though there are many dear saints that the Lord has not blessed with biological children, true barrenness is a condition for pagans only, not ever for the saints of Christ. In fact, to have biological children is to take your physical essence and give it to another, but to reproduce spiritually is to take the Christ who abides in your soul and give it to another, to take his essence and give it to them. This is, in fact, the truest fulfillment of the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, and it's the reason why Christians reproduce physically at all. We have children in order to train them according to the gospel. I don't know of any Christian parent who said, yeah, I want to have kids so that I can people hell with them. That's not what we do. We train them according to the gospel, and God blesses that training, and the children of the believing most typically become believing. But whether or not biology has taken its due course, the great commission with its great result will. The eunuch, as he is called, is probably one of the most fruitful men ever in the family of God. His generations, no doubt, endure to this day and will endure forever. Thus, he is, as Isaiah 56 stated, no longer a dry tree. All many seeds have fallen from his branches.
And that all began with a certain passage of Scripture that pointed undeniably to the Messiah. And I will leave you with that now. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and yet we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. All the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, I will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. What man does this speak of, Philip? Help me. Does Isaiah the prophet speak of himself? Or does he speak of another? Well, friend, Isaiah spoke of Jesus of Nazareth the fulfillment of all that you have heard and salvation to all who find him. Do you know him? Does he know you? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the example of this man. We thank you for the example of our brother Philip. We thank you for the example of the Ethiopian eunuch who I think is not known as that now as he is with you. He has been given a new name, perhaps one that signifies his great fullness and not barrenness. And Lord, I pray that if there are those here who do not know you, that they would find salvation even today. That you would speak that simple message of your gospel into their hearts, into a place that we cannot reach, through your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. 
But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.